Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Ethan Cross. He is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, mind control. An award-winning professor in the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business. He's the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. And for our purposes, most importantly, he's come out with a book that I thought was an excellent, really fun and interesting read called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and how to harness it. Ethan, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, I have too. I have a ton of questions. So let's jump in. First of all, what's the problem you're hoping to solve with the book? Well, the problem is that we have this amazing tool in our head. It's called our inner voice. And and in technical terms, what I mean when I use that term is I'm referring to our ability to silently use language to reflect in our lives. Right. And we, we do this all the time when we're, you know, simulated and planning for the future, like when I'm rehearsing the talking points of an upcoming um, interview or, or what have you, I'm using my inner voice. I'm trying to make sense of my experiences. Why did this happen? What am I going to do? I'm using my inner voice. That tool can sometimes get us into trouble though, because often when we experience adversity, which is endemic to life, we turn our attention inward. We try to make sense of it, but we end up spinning instead. We ruminate, we catastrophize, we worry. We experience what I call chatter, which is we get stuck in these negative thought loops that can unfortunately turn turn this wonderful tool we have into a, a complete curse. And so the problem I'm trying to solve is I'm trying to give people tools that they can use to nip, nip the chatter in the bud the moment they recognize it happening and over time, hopefully, start experiencing chatter to a lesser degree in their lives. You know, so you say something that's interesting, which causes some of this problem. Uh, early on in the book, you say that living in the present seems counter to our biology. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Why would that be? Like, it seems like it would be, yeah. you know, part of the biology. Well, the, we have evolved this amazing ability to travel through time in our minds. And uh, I would argue that this is, this is a superpower if you think about it. How do we learn from the past? We travel back in time. We think about the, 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 you know, the screw-ups or the victories we've had. We learn from them. We extract meaning from those experiences and use that knowledge to propel us forward. We can try to plan for the future. We strategize all the time. Like, how do we figure out how to solve our problems, right? We think about, well, here's here's how this, you know, solution might pan out, or here's how it might not. We're doing those kinds of simulations. This ability to travel in time, it's an essential feature of the human mind. Take it a step further, Peter. Think about savoring the past. Like, think about, like, the last vacation you've had with your family, a memory that you have, and then you suddenly find a smile in your face and, and you feel good. Yeah, we know that experiences are a better source of well-being than actual material possessions because 
When we have an experience, we can savor those experiences. That's traveling in time. What about fantasizing about the future? I've been stuck at home for the past, you know, 18 months, however long, like the rest of us. All I've been doing is fantasizing about the future and it's given me hope. Like, so I'm, I'm curious if like all of this, all of this writing and all of this sort of spiritual methodology about being the present is misguided. Well, I think that's taking it a little bit too far. Um, here's how I think about this. The human mind gives us the ability to travel through time. Sometimes being in the moment can be fantastic, um, just as being in the past or future can be useful. Oftentimes, this mental time travel machine that we possess, it breaks down. We get stuck in the past, in the negative past. We can't get back. Not good, right? You saw Back to the Future, what that can do for you. Hopefully people get that reference. Sometimes I, I don't know, I'm getting older nowadays. You've just dated yourself, but I did see it pop on on Netflix recently. So okay, you know, okay, other yeah. people will start to get the same reference. You, you certainly didn't lose me. Okay, great. <laughs> it's a classic. We, we, we sometimes get fixate on the future, right? We're worried endlessly. Like what if something really terrible happens? And one solution to that is to just refocus your attention on the present. Right. And so it's a, that, I think that is a very blunt tool in a certain sense. Right. So we're stuck in the past or future. Let's just keep focused on the present. That's one thing you could do, but it's by no means the only tool that we possess. And so the approach that I advocate is to figure out not how to shut down mental time travel altogether, which, by the way, I don't actually think is possible. Right. And I also don't think that a lot of spiritual traditions from the East actually advocate for that. I think that's often a message that is getting lost in translation, this idea that you should only be in the present. Um, but I think we can figure out how to make people better at mental time travel. And that's what the tools that I talk about in the book uh, really focus on doing. Like, here's how you can harness this thing, this mind that you possess to make right. it work for you rather than against you. I love that. And we're definitely going to get some tools. Um, I, I was reading this book and I was thinking about all these books about happiness. And, uh, and, you know, things that you can do in order to be more happy um, and everything from like, you know, finding meaning in your life to gratitude journals to all this stuff. And reading your book, I felt like isn't some ways like isn't happiness entirely determined by the chatter in our heads like that, that, you know, my experience of life is based on the 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 narrative of my experience of life no matter what that life is and i've always sort of felt like the key to happiness is low expectations because then everything's gravy um but that also seems to be entirely about the chatter is like is is happiness really basically about what our minds are doing no matter the experience that we're having well there is some research which suggests that you could be you know, th the mind is interpreting what we're doing, right? And so it, it is the, the, the closest predictor of how we're going to feel because you could put me in a situation that is designed to be amazingly fun. Like I can be on a roller coaster with my six-year-old daughter at Disney. Like objectively, I, I don't get nauseous. Not right. objectively, I get nauseous. That would okay, not be well, my Okay, well, that's a bad example for you. <laughs> no, for but you. for you, that's a good example. But for me, that's about as good as it can get. But if I'm fixated on a problem or something that I'm worried about or something that's happened, I'm not going to be enjoying that experience. And that's the mind filtering our experiences. And well, and then that would be an argument for being in the present. 
or reframing how you're thinking about your past or present, right? So, so there are a couple of ways to intervene there. One would be, okay, are you capable of getting rid of the worry and recalibrating on the moment? If you right. can, often hard to do, but if you can, right, in that exact moment without right. meditating, great. But there are other other mental um, shifts, if you will, like little psychological jujitsu moves, some of which I talk about, that can also be quite useful. This touches on another, I think, very important theme of the book and uh, important theme of my work, which is there are no single skills or tools that work for all people in all situations. We didn't evolve as a species to possess just one tool. Go to the present when you're experiencing chatter. Instead, we have a variety of tools. I talk about like 26 different ones in the book. And I think we have those tools for a reason, right? Because different combinations of tools work for different people in different situations. So it's not a one size fits all approach. And I think the more we can wrap our head around that, really the more empowering that idea becomes because it gives us lots of options for how to deal with chatter. So let's talk about some of these tools. What Give us some ways to support the positive chatter and diminish the negative. All right. Well, let's break it down into, into just give people some categories. There, there, I like to break these tools down to three buckets. Things you could do on your own, ways of people tools, ways of harnessing your relationships, and then environmental tools, ways of actually interacting with your physical spaces that help with your chatter. There are a lot of tools in each bucket. I'll just give you a few of my favorites. Um, these may or may not be tools that I use in my own life. Uh, <laughs> so, full disclosure. Full disclosure. But, but you know, the caveat I give you, all the tools that I talk about in the book and here, these are all science-based tools. So you know, although I may use some, they're all grounded in science. One thing I do is something called distant self-talk, which involves giving yourself advice like you were coaching a friend and actually using language to help you do this seamlessly in your life. So the next time you're struggling with chatter, try coaching yourself through the problem using your own name. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage this? One of the things we know from lots of research is that people are much better at coaching others than they are taking their own advice. And when I give talks on, on this topic, I often ask people, have you ever been in a situation where a friend or a loved one comes to you with a problem? They're spinning, chatter, chatter, chatter. They don't know what to do. They present the problem to you. Really easy for you to coach them through the problem everyone's hand invariably goes up. Peter, you know, because you give a lot of talks that doesn't always happen with an audience when you ask a right. question, but this right. is an incredibly common experience. When it's not happening to us, we can weigh in more objectively. I found that so interesting that just this like little trick of saying to myself, okay, Peter, like that changes so much. It's like such a useful thing. Let me ask you a question related to that. And I wanna keep on the tools. But I found it interesting that, that you mentioned in the book that study after study found that talking to others about our negative experience doesn't help us recover in a meaningful way, but writing about our experiences does. So I'm, I'm curious about that. And I'm also curious, is it because we don't talk to others, we're talking about ourselves, not using our name, not, you know, like, like we're, we're identifying too much for, I was sort of curious about that. Yeah, so when we're writing about ourselves, um, when we're writing about our experiences, doing something called expressive writing, which involves writing about our deepest thoughts and feelings for 15 to 20 minutes, anywhere from one to three consecutive days, essentially we're creating a story uh, 
to explain what happened to us. And, and when you write a story, you need a character. And that right. character actually is you. So you're writing about yourself. So you're actually writing about yourself from a distance. So it's that same technique of using your name in a certain sense. In a, it's a different way of getting distance. Writing can be a way right. of getting distance. There are lots and lots of ways of doing it. Right. The reason why talking often backfires, it doesn't always backfire, but, but it often does because many of us think that the, the best kinds of conversations for managing chatter involve just venting your emotions, like find someone else to just get it out, express your emotions to. Research shows that venting can be really good for strengthening the bonds, the friendship bonds between two people. It's really good to know that there's someone who cares enough about me to take the time to listen. But if all you do is vent, it's like throwing logs on a burning flame. You're just yeah. reactivating the negative feelings. Oh my God, you said what? And what did they do? Oh, you must've felt awful. So you're just reactivating the negative feelings. You leave the conversation, you feel great about your friendship, but you haven't talked about the experience in a way to help you reframe it. You haven't talked about it in a way that ultimately gives you a sense of closure. So, so Connor- you, know, you, you have a term, by the way, for this, that, that I, I thought was super helpful if you're the person listening. You talk about co-rumination yes. and that it's a danger. And I see this in coaches when I train coaches as well. It's important to be an ally, but not so much of an ally that we end up taking on our clients' issues as our own and feel the same anger they do. You know, when someone feels injustice, you want to sort of support them, but it's sort of the downside of empathy that like, I'm empathizing so much. I'm like, ah, oh, that is terrible. That person is terrible. And that's putting on, on uh, lives. And I think there's a really useful skill in as the outside person to be able to empathize and then also take a stand that sort of supports them but also holds the other place so that you're not putting logs on the fire yeah that's exactly it it's, it's a two-step process with step one being empathize validate but then step two and this is where there's a there's there's an artistry that comes into this and i'll, I'll explain that in a second but step two is to help that person reframe the experience. All right, look, objectively it's stunk, but let's think about this. You know, you've got, you've done hundreds of these interviews. You've never flubbed one too badly. Let's move on. You'll feel better tomorrow. Like lots of ways to try to reframe it. And right. it's that process that is essential for having a conversation that helps people work through the chatter. Now, I say there's some art here. And as a scientist, you know, I love going to museums and seeing art, but I don't tend to do art. I do science. There is art to this, though, because different people, and depending on the situations they're dealing with, may need to spend more time in that first stage of just expressing and venting before they're ready to transition into hearing the reframing advice. So you need, if you're on the other side of the equation, if you're the chatter advisor, so to speak, right. you need to feel this out, right? You need to feel, when have I heard enough? When has a person talked enough that they're now receptive to trying to think through this and come up with a solution. And, you know, as I listen to your advice, uh, Ethan, it, it feels like that advice is also useful when you're talking to yourself. Like there's some element of like, yeah, that guy was really a jerk or that. And, and then to be able to say, okay, Peter, like, what are we missing? You know, like really to, to not co-ruminate with yourself because then, you know, you're, you're, you're adding fuel to the fire. Totally. And you know what, another interesting, just to impress upon people why, this distance is so useful for dealing with rumination. You know, think, about some, think about the things you often think about yourself. 
during your deepest, darkest moments. You know, you, you give a talk that you don't think went well, or you, you, you know, you're on a date and it backfires, what have you, you put, put in the, the, whatever situation is relevant right. to you. We say things, we think things to ourselves that we would never, ever say to another, like to our best friend, right. if they right. came. That's remarkable. Right. Right. That that we can we can actually talk to ourselves in ways that are so ugly and irrational. Right. Right. And that's where the linguistic shift can be really useful. And and the reason we think it works is because think about when do you use names or or words like you? Virtually all the time we use those parts of speech when we're thinking about other people. Right. There's this link between names and and the neural the neural software thinking about others. And so it gives us this automatic perspective shift. How can we know if our inner voice is true and realistic versus hyperbolic? Like, you know, you're saying we would talk to ourselves, we would never talk to someone else that way, but we might be, we, so yeah, so we might be nicer to other people than, than we are to ourselves. But, you know, there's some sense that the inner voice might be warning us of fears that are legitimate versus hysterical. And, oh. and, and how do you, how do you know that you're not walking around with a baseball bat worried someone's going to break in in the middle of the night and no one's there versus someone's actually there and you probably would be well served to have a baseball bat. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you picked this up. And, and this takes us into the territory of whether, whether we should be striving to not experience any negativity. Right. And I think emphatically the answer to that question is no, that shouldn't be the goal because negative emotions serve a function like small doses of uh, self critique can actually be quite useful. I I screwed up. Like that gives me an emotional response that helps me make sure that I don't do that again. When I experience a small twinge of anxiety, when I think about a talk I haven't yet prepared, guess what that motivates me to do? Like work on the, work on the talk. So we don't want to rid ourselves of negative emotions. We want to rid ourselves of, the chatter, which is when those negative emotions become prolonged. Right. Um, when we do experiments on these linguistic shifts and other kinds of interventions, if you look at the thoughts streaming through people's heads, like what do people say to themselves when they're in this distanced self-talk mode using their name? Right. To, it, it's not, you know, I, I, I like to describe it. It's not like cupcakes and warm cups of tea and fuzzy blankets, right? Like people are still recognizing, all right, man, get real you gotta you gotta step up to the plate here and stop screwing around like it you know for me i activate this voice of like my my wrestling coach in high school like this was a stern muscle-bound individual who you know was no nonsense but it was always about getting the job done and that's how i talk to myself it's not it's gonna be just fine just wait you'll see you know like and for some people that might well work but it is not about silencing any kind of negativity. I think that would be um, an extremely uh, dysfunctional goal to have. Right. Okay, so share with us some of the others. You, you sort of talked about it. One tip is uh, use your name uh, when you talk to yourself. It helps you to create some distance distancing. Uh, and you know you have a whole bunch of others. Well, share another tip that um, you another, think- Another easy, easy thing you, do, you can do um, if you're dealing with an acute stressor, Think about how you're going to feel a day, a week, six months, or a year from now. This is something called temporal distance. And this is another way of getting some mental space and perspective, broadening your perspective that can be useful. 
when we are experiencing chatter, we tend to over-focus, narrowly focus on the problem. And, oh my God, when will this ever end? What am I going to do? Right. Uh, when you think about how you're going to feel about the situation in the future, what people often realize is as awful as what I'm dealing with is right now, it's temporary. It will eventually pass. And that gives us hope. Hope is a very powerful bomb for an inner voice run awry. So, so this is another easy thing. And you know, these tools are interchangeable. We, we, we've done some recent research. It's not just using one tool, it's using combinations of tools. So often like when I'm coaching myself, hey, Ethan, how are you gonna manage this? All right, here's what you gotta do. And remember, you'll feel better about this tomorrow, no matter what happens, because it'll be over. And that, that's, that's the kind of little shift that takes the edge off that lets me do what I need to do, which is my job. And, you know, and to the point of these multiple tools, you make this great and I think very, very important uh, point at the very end of the book that creating that kind of distance between your thoughts and your experiences can be useful when when you have chatter and like even to think like, okay, this too shall pass. And But when it comes to joy, and this is this idea of like being flexible and when it comes to joy, doing the opposite, like immersing yourself in those moments, like letting them wash over you in a way. So, so you're sort of saying, look, we tend to be unbalanced. We tend to skip over the nice parts and, and immerse ourselves in the negativity in the past and the challenges. And, or, or, you know, maybe some people do the opposite, but, and, and there's, then there's like a Buddhist Eastern philosophy or methodology that says, um, don't, don't, don't uh, uh, grasp at either of them. You know, like stay in the present, uh, uh, let go of, of, of aversion and also let go of desire, right? And what you're saying is, well, actually, and tell me if you're saying this, this is what I'm sort of getting, actually, for our sort of happiness and for our, you know, uh, success in life in a sense, we're better off being a little discerning, like let go of a lot of the negative stuff we might be clinging to, but go ahead and reach for uh, some of, you know, the positive stuff. And maybe in Buddhism or in Eastern methodology, they're talking about desire as opposed to a, a positive experience. So I just want to make that distinction that, you know, like desire also is something you don't have and that that could actually be negative chatter also. Like, I want this, I'm never going to get it. I haven't gotten it. But you're saying like, use these tools discerningly. And sometimes you want to, um, a and you want to bias yourself towards the kinds of thoughts that will give you a more positive experience. Am I thinking about this correctly? It's absolutely right. Um, we want to, you know, there's no tool is useful in all situations in life. Like, you know, you can't build a house with a hammer. Sometimes you need a screwdriver and sometimes the hammer can, you know, be great or not so great. So we need to be discerning which tools apply to which situations. Um, you know, the, the Eastern approach of maintaining that kind of homeostatic, even keel, that's one approach. Um, to living a good life. Um, another one is, is, a, is a hedonic approach where you're trying to really bathe yourself in the positive, immerse away, um, but, but minimize the negative. And ultimately, the tools that I talk about in the book give you the option to do whatever you want to do with respect to those two different goals. Uh, I think about you know, fundamentally what we're talking about here is managing ourselves, managing mm -hmm. our emotional lives. And I like to break that down very simply. There are two, two components to doing that. There's motivation. What are your goals? What do you want out of life? And then there's ability, tools. Like what are the tools 
that are there to help you achieve those goals. So, you know, depending on what your motivation is, you're going to use different tools. And so it's really up to you to use these tools in the way that best works for you. What I've been struck by over the course of my career is how poor a job we as scientists have done communicating what these different tools are. There's a whole boatload of them that we're actively studying. And because we don't teach people about this in schools, you know, maybe we get a little bit about it in, in, in some of our cultural activities, religion and something, stuff like that, but we don't teach people about it. So a lot of them are just out there waiting to be used. So let's share a couple of more now as we as we continue to have this conversation. You've talked about distancing. Um, you know, you talk about spending time in nature. You talk about imposing order on your surroundings. Give us something that uh, can continue to help listeners to um, master the chatter in their heads. Okay, so so we I gave you a couple of things on your own. We also talked about some people tools because right. we talked about it'd be a good chatter advisor. Right. Um, so if we go to the environmental tools. Um, one thing, one tool you can use is to uh, perform a ritual, which, which I define as a, a rigid, structured sequence of behaviors. You're doing the same thing the exact same way every time you do that ritual. Um, you can do a ritual or even organize your surroundings. When people experience chatter, we often feel like we don't have control. So our mind's in control of us. It's making us feel crazy. We don't know what to do. What we've learned is that we can compensate for that feeling of a lack of control by establishing order around us. So organizing your spaces. This is why a lot of people reflexively clean up and organize when they're stressed out. Like I do this. I do that. And I always wonder whether that's just a distraction. I mean, if I, if I have something really hard to write, my house will get clean. My, the rugs are really nice. Like, you know, like, uh, and, and I don't know if that's just a useful process or if that's just procrastination. Well, no. So the research would suggest that, that that actually does serve a function. What it's doing is because you are in control, you're you know putting everything away and making it neat and tidy. That's giving you a sense of control that you lack when you're in front of the keyboard struggling to you know come up with a paragraph that sounds really good. And that can be relieving. So that's one way that organizing our surroundings can help us. It's also one way that a rich performing a ritual can help us as well. Now, if you're doing a ritual, uh, rituals work through a variety of different pathways. So boosting our sense of control is one thing. Sometimes rituals are attentionally demanding, like there are a lot, you have to do it the exact same way each time. And that can also take our attention away from our chatter temporarily in ways that are also useful. Is that uh, why a lot of sports people, Olympians, stuff like that, they have this, you know, whole process of 12 things they do before because yeah. it just gets their mind. It's, it's distracting. And, and it gives them a sense of control in an control. otherwise uncontrollable situation. So one way, you know, I think I mentioned before in the book, I talk about 26 tools. You could break them down and falling into three categories. There are things you, you've done, but not really understood why. And, and I, you know, the book gives you the science, explain that. And I think once right. you understand why you do something, it's empowering. Then like cleaning my house. Like cleaning your house and organizing. Like I, I'm strategic now that I know how that works. I don't wait to feel the instinct to clean and organize. I just go and do the dishes. Right. Added bonus, my wife is really happy with it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, 
you know, so there are things that you may, you know, talking to yourself in the third person silently. It's another one. Like people, there's records of people doing this throughout time. Why the hell do people, why, why does someone do that when they're under stress? Now that we know the science, now you can be much more strategic. Then there are things that you do that you think help you, but science says they actually don't. Venting being another example. So that's a second category. And then the final category of tools are, are things that you just, just weren't on your radar at all um, that can be helpful for managing chatter. So let me give you one of those. Um, and, and that's seeking out experiences that provide you with a sense of awe, uh, awe being an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining. So last time I experienced it was when we landed the Mars rover on Mars. I find it awe-inspiring that we have you know, not only mastered flying, but now interplanetary travel. It's a mind blower to me. I just can't contemplate it. And what we know happens when people experience awe, they experience what we call shrinking of the self. When you're contemplating something vast and indescribable, interplanetary travel, maybe it's the Grand Canyon or an amazing view, you and your own concerns feel a whole lot smaller by comparison. And that provides us with some relief. So seeking out awe-inspiring experiences mm-hmm. is another way of managing chat. And you can often get those in nature. Um, so those are a few other tools. Right. I'm not sure if you're going to have something to say about this. Uh, I wrote it as a question as I was reading your book, and now I can't remember if that was just, it's just a question I have or whether it's uh, that we know certain beliefs can promote happiness and peacefulness, like believing certain things are going to promote happiness. Um, what I've always been curious about is how can we adopt a belief that we don't necessarily believe in, you know. In other words, like most of uh, uh, most of the story is you're, you're sharing the book about changing your belief without knowing about it because someone else has convinced you. And can you convince yourself? Can you change your own belief because you know it's healthy to? And I'll I'll just take a big one. Like I remember, I remember being very very young and being in Israel, and and watching these very orthodox religious people, and thinking like what if they're wrong? You know, like they've like, you know, created, they've, they've organized their entire life around a basic belief. And what if they're wrong? And as I got older, I sort of feel like, you know, that's a pretty good and useful belief because their lives are pretty good. And then I came to thinking, but how do I, how, how could you adopt a belief like that if you don't actually believe it, but you know, it's healthy to believe it? Do you understand my question? I understand your question entirely. And it's, it's why, um, you know, religion, believing in a higher power, for example, has been linked with a variety of benefits. And, you know, you can make the argument that religion at a certain level is good for you to believe in God, because if you believe in a religion, it provides you with answers to existential questions that if we don't have answers to often drive chatter. Um, how do you believe in something? If you don't believe in it, uh, I don't have a great answer to that. I think the key is to find things that you can believe in, which provide you with some sense of meaning, purpose, um, and hope. That is the, I think that's the, you know, that's what science would suggest is the route to the well-being. The power of belief is, uh, is truly remarkable. In the book, I have a chapter on, on 
on belief on, on the power of placebos. So the literature on placebos is, I, I think I've used the term before in this interview, mind-blowing, uh, you know, technical term. It's remarkable that study after study shows you give people a sugar pill. You tell people who have moderate depression, like people who are, you know, in therapy often to deal with their difficulties. You say, trust me, Peter, take this pill and you will feel better. It may take a couple of days, but you'll begin to feel better. And lo and behold, it does. You can even take this further. You could tell people, look, I'm going to give you this pill. It's a sugar pill. But if you believe me that taking this is going to feel better, you will. Research shows that there's even evidence for the benefits of these non-deceptive placebos. So the power of belief to, to, to influence how we think, feel, and behave is tremendous. And I think the challenge we all face is to identify what are the beliefs that we can actually buy into? Because if we can identify what those beliefs are, it really gives us, um, uh, you know, a leg up. You know, it's really, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's such interesting research for cynics and for, you know, also those of us that were like raised to be a little suspicious and to question things because there's, you know, that goes back to that earlier question of, of you know, maybe your inner voice is right. It may or may not be, but it doesn't seem super useful to belabor it, like to ruminate over it. It's, you know, it's like there's, you, I, 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 I see the place in myself where I don't want to be taken for a fool. So cyn the cynical approach is the smarter approach, because if I could find a hole in something that makes me smart, and if I believe in something that's farcical, then that makes me dumb. And and I, I can absolutely see how that's that like helps me in a self-concept, but is entirely not useful in terms of self-perception and or not self-feeling about you know, how I move through life. I think it is a question of degree, a small, you know, I, look, being self being a critical thinker, we teach critical thinking skills. We think this is a hallmark of, uh, of the ability to think well. So um, we don't want to get rid of that capacity when applied to ourselves because we can benefit a lot from it. What we want to get rid of is having that self-critical thought and then having it perseverate, continue on and on. Right. That's when it ceases to provide important benefits and really becomes destructive. And that is what Chatter and this book is all about. It's about recognizing the moment where a, a, a pattern of thinking ceases to be adaptive and starts just spiraling. And so people ask like, is chatter, is chat, is there good chatter? No, the way I define chatter, chatter, once you get stuck in those negative thought loops, not constructive, we wanna take action to intervene. Right. So does that, I, and I don't remember reading this in the book, but I'm curious about your perspective on forgiving people or letting go, or when you're, you know, when someone's done something and you just sort of can't get over it. Yeah. Um, same thing. Use the same tools. Like it's like, if, you know, getting angry at someone and ruminating over that is the same as getting angry at yourself and ruminating over that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the process of perseverating and turning things over, I mean, I think whether if it's about someone else who's wronged you, I mean, it, it still exerts a real, like the body isn't discriminating about, you know, as to whether you are perseverating over um, a, uh, you know, a horrible act that you've committed versus someone else committed towards you. In either case, you're maintaining this elevated biological threat response chronically over time. That's right. you know, making it hard for you to focus, 
you know, physically damaging your body and having negative effects in your relationship. So it doesn't matter, you know, what the thoughts are dealing with as long as they're spiraling. Um, with respect to forgiveness, forgiveness is, I think, a really interesting um, topic. Uh, I'm a big, big um, supporter of a forgiving attitude, but I do, you know, I, I think there is some truth to the old, old adage, um, you know, forgive, but don't forget. I think we, you know, we do want to remember. It's my mother's favorite saying. Yeah. And I, I think there's real words of wisdom in that, right? Like we, it would, we, we don't, there's information that comes from life and our experiences. We all screw up. We all make mistakes. And I think being able to forgive that can be really, you know, productive for society. At the same time, remembering these things can be useful for all of us too. Right. It's a little hard to draw the line between remembering and not forgiving. Like you keep that in your head. It's like, oh, I'm going to make a notch. Like that person's not reliable. Yeah. Well, that that then like like where that I get a little lost in terms of where the line is when you say forgive but not forget. Well, I, I hear your point, because if they're unreliable, you don't want to be taken for a fool. And yet, um, you know, deciding that they're unreliable, is that really forgiving? Like I, well, I, I get lost there a little bit. We like this could be a topic for another conversation, but we always like we like to think in categories, people to simplify the world. And, you know, all of us, of course, know that. Although it's nice to think of the world as black and white, it's all shades of gray. So of course there's a fuzzy line here, but in that example, the way I manage that is I forgive the offense, the lack of conscientiousness, but you know what? We all, we all have our flubs. So let's, let's give you another shot and let's see how you act on the next 10 engagements. And you know what? The more you prove that you are conscientious successively, the more easy it is for me to then categorize that first offense as an isolation. As an aberration, right? Yeah. Um, so we talk about the voice in the head, right? That's chatter is your voice in the head. And um, and I'm, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I don't have a single inner voice. Like I have the voice that says, eat that chocolate chip cookie. And then a competing voice that says, don't eat that chocolate chip cookie. And is there like a third voice that's adjudicating between them? Like, wow, well, there's, we've got, you know, we've got a narrative in there. Yeah, well, you know, First of all, there are multiple voices. Like if I asked you to just, you know, pause right now and hear your mother tell you to make your bed, you could probably hear her voice in your head, right? Right. Yeah. So, so just you know, in terms of like um, kind of setting the parameters here, and and that of course, some people well, hearing voices in my head. I thought that's something that you know people with problems um, experience. So you know, point number one is that. Um, this ability to hear different voices, like as long as you recognize that they're emanating from you, from your own mind, perfectly normal part of everyday human experience. Different, some clinical populations sometimes like hear a voice and think it's coming from someone else that's in their head or that's when we're getting into the train of right. son of Sam. Yeah. But in terms of, in terms of like, you know, these different voices adjudicating, I mean, this, I would, I would say that this is, this is the thinking process, right? So you're, you know, people oscillate back and forth between third and first. All right, Ethan, what are you doing? I really want this. Ethan, chill out. So we can have those conversations with ourselves. Um, not all people report having those, but other people have this really active um, inner dialogue, not monologue, but actually a dialogue. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a sign of a perfectly functioning mind. Thoughts about meditation. 
Meditation is, uh, is a tool um, and it can be a really useful tool. Uh, I don't think it's a panacea though, in the same way that I don't think any of the tools that I talk about in the book are panaceas. So I think it's, it's a tool you'd wanna have in your toolbox if it serves you well. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people who love meditation. A lot of people have trouble meditating and, and find it um, doesn't help them, but they nonetheless lead really great lives. And so uh, I think the more we can think of meditation as a tool, uh, the better. Right. I mean, I think of you running the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory, and there's so much talk about the research about meditation and self-control. Have you found that to be true? Or you have found that for some people, yes, for some people, no, for some people walking in nature is their self-control or for some people, you know, the distraction, you know, the, the old marshmallow experiment kind of thing is self-control. Well, you know, we, we actually just did a huge study looking at um, how people were managing their anxiety around COVID. So we did right. the tracked them for two weeks and we asked them about what tools they use and we measured their anxiety we found some interesting things. Um, the first is people didn't use one tool each day. On average, people used cocktails of tools, combinations, like three to five tools a day. Right. And single tools didn't predict changes in anxiety. What predicted how people felt was using a cluster. of The, the people who use the healthiest combinations of tools, mm -hmm. things like you know, the temporal distancing, the go for a walk in nature, talk with someone constructively. Those people experience a 30% lower level of anxiety compared to people who use the unhealthiest tools. Unhealthy tools being things like venting, drinking, suppressing your feelings. So I think we need to start really embracing this idea of a toolbox that we possess, right? right. We've evolved, we, we have these different tools for a reason. No one would, would, would consciously attempt to build a house with a single tool. It would be comical. I would argue that the same is true for managing our emotional lives, right? We've got to avail ourselves of the full repertoire available to us. And um, the sooner we do that, the better off we'll be. That's great. Ethan Cross, he is uh, the author most recently of Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Uh, Ethan, it has been such a pleasure having you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, great conversation, Peter. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.